Well, friends, the last two and a quarter years have been historic for those of us living in Western civilization. The incursion of this coronavirus in February or March of 2020 to the present has faced us with questions we have not had to answer before. We've had confusing and contradictory mask mandates. At one point, we were told by the experts that these masks are useless to, uh, to ward off this microscopic um, uh, airborne virus. And then later on, we're given these mask mandates and told that if you don't wear a mask, you're not loving your neighbor. We've had lockdowns where people have been urged to stay inside. Remember the time not too long ago when the roads and highways seemed barren of vehicles. We have had the closing of businesses and companies because of restrictions put upon them. And some of those businesses have been closed for good. Restaurants and other eateries have been restricted as to their clientele. And some of them, as a result of that, no longer exist. There have been impositions on churches where similar impositions were not given to gambling casinos. We have had vaccine mandates foisted upon us so that if you're not vaccinated, you can't travel to certain places, you can't enter certain venues, such as um, concert halls, and in California, even restaurants. Athletes have been prohibited from performing because they're not vaccinated. I heard recently of the world's top tennis player, a man by the name of Novak Djokovic, who is not allowed to compete because he hasn't been vaccinated. Concerning vaccines, the narrative has changed. At the beginning, we were told that these vaccines would prevent us from getting COVID. But then after people get vaccinated and get numerous boosters, they still get COVID, sometimes more than once. And now we're told, well, the vaccines will only make it less severe. The immunity that comes from getting the virus has been severely played down. The negative effects of the vaccine have been all but ignored. There's been a banning of substances that have some proven efficacy against the virus, such as if applied early, such as hydroxychloroquine. The world's foremost expert on ivermectin, which has helped some people, it didn't happen to help me, but it did help some people, he has come to call the negative press that that drug has gotten Pharmageddon. And it appears that there's this massive conspiracy between big government, the pharmaceutical giants, sometimes called big pharma, and mainstream media to cripple our society with unfounded fears. We have seen people traveling alone in cars and trucks wearing a mask. I remember not too long ago, well, it was probably last year, I was walking my little granddaughter down to the Grace Community Church campus in Los Angeles. Nobody for hundreds of yards around and some lady shouts out the window, wear a mask, put a mask on. Now, we don't take the virus lightly. We know that it has been dangerous. It has been life-threatening. I know personally by name people, young and old, who have succumbed to the virus. But I think we can say that the fear-mongering has been over the top, not at all founded upon reality and science. And what's behind all of that, brothers and sisters? Well, as Christians, God has given us a measure of discernment into human nature. And I think it's quite safe to say that behind all of this are some of the greatest temptations that plague our human race. Fear, the love of money, and the love of power. In the case of the general population, 
fear is rampant. People are afraid to die. And well, they might be if they're not prepared to face their creator. In the case of Big Pharma, I think a lot of the motivation has been the love of money. In the case of the medical community, who has lost so much credibility in these two years, I think it is ignorance and perhaps the fear of man in parting with the general narrative. And on the part of government and governing authorities, this virus has given occasion to play on people's fears and for many to expand their political power. And so in light of all of that, I'm bringing a few messages. It will end up being four messages. This is the third of the fourth on the subject of the Christian's responsibility to government. And I'm springboarding off of the words of Jesus in Mark 12. I was preaching through Mark. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What have we seen so far? We've seen that when it comes to governmental authorities, they are established by God. Romans 13.1 could not be more clear when it says, for there is no authority except from God, and those existing have been ordained or appointed by God. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate and he told that Roman ruler, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you or given to you from above. Well, from these statements, we learn that on the one hand, government is legitimate. All governments are ordained of God and are legitimate. But we also learn that government authority is limited. There's only one absolute authority in the universe, and that is the authority of the triune God. It is said of the Son of God in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, he is the firstborn, that doesn't mean first created, but occupying the place of privileged inheritance. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so all governmental authority, all human authority, because it is derived, because it is delegated by God, it is limited. And then we looked at our main responsibility to government authorities, and we noted that there's one verb that dominates our duty to government, and it is the word translated submit or be in subjection to. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. You see, in generally obeying government, we are obeying God. Titus 3.1, remind them, people of God there in Crete, to be subject to rulers, authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And Peter weighs in and says in 1 Peter 2.13 and 14, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That word in every case translated submit or be in subjection to is the Greek word hupotasso, place yourself under. So our main responsibility to human government is be subject, be submissive to. The other main responsibility we saw from 1 Timothy 2 is to pray for governors, kings, those who are in authority. Submit and supplicate. Submit and pray is our main duty. But last week, we began to see 
that to be generally submissive to government does not mean we need to obey government in all things. Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, give us the main function of government, tell us what our basic duty is to government to submit, but those passages are not all that the Bible says about our responsibility to government. We have the whole counsel of God. And as you know, we are to compare Scripture with Scripture. It's one of the basic principles of biblical interpretation, comparing Scripture with Scripture, sometimes called the analogy of faith. And when we take the Scriptures as a whole, we find that there are occasions for disobeying government. And last week, we looked at the grounds or the bases of that disobedience. One is the fact that only God demands our supreme allegiance. Only God are we to obey without hesitation, without question, without qualification. No human authority can make that claim. Couple that with the fact that there's going to be this perpetual antagonism between believers and unbelievers. Remember in Galatians 3, Paul's talking about Ishmael and Isaac, and he says, Those born according to the flesh persecute those born according to the spirit. So it is now. He's speaking of this perpetual antagonism between unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers, and Jesus told us in John 15, the world's going to hate you like it hated me. The world is going to hate God. The world is going to hate God's people, hate God's truth. And that enmity, that antagonism from the world in general is going to be reflected in secular human government. In Daniel 2, there are a couple of dreams where the secular governments are described, and they're described as beasts. The governments of the world are beastly in that they will be cruel and they will be devouring. And therefore, human secular governments are going to make laws and rules that are contrary to the law of God and to the revealed will of God. And that's going to put Christians in the dilemma of sometimes having to choose between God and government. And then a third basis for disobeying government at times is the example of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was born in space-time history into a very real society where he was under both secular and religious authorities. And he did not always submit or obey those religious authorities, did, did he? The Pharisees made a lot of man-made rules, and Jesus deliberately defied them and provoked them by his defiance. He did not comply with man-made rules that were contrary to the law of God his Father. And we saw that Jesus took it upon himself to rebuke those authorities. Remember Matthew 23, seven or eight times, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, woe to you. And so Jesus' own example teaches us that we are not committed to always having to obey human government. And as for the occasions when the believer must or may disobey, we considered last week the two most obvious ones, and I quickly reviewed them. First of all, we must disobey government when it commands what God forbids. Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives, when those Hebrew babies pop out of the womb, if their males kill them, They commanded what God forbids. God forbids murder. And so the Hebrew midwives did not obey the king, and God blessed them for that. He rewarded them by opening their wombs. King Nebuchadnezzar commanded that uh, 
the people, his subjects, worship a statue of himself. That's contrary to God's will. It's contrary to his command not to commit idolatry. And so the three friends of Daniel did not obey that command because God forbade that. And God blessed them by delivering them in the fiery furnace. Not even their clothes were smelling like smoke. He preserved them and he put a fourth one there with may may have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus to protect them. So we must disobey government when it commands what God forbids. And then the flip side of that is we must disobey government when it forbids what God commands. King Darius forbade prayer to anyone but himself. When Daniel heard that, he continued praying three times to his God, Yahweh. Darius forbade what God commanded. In the case of the apostles, the authorities command, forbade them from preaching anymore in this name. But Jesus had commanded them to go and make disciples. And so they continued and they made the statement, we must obey God rather than men. You see, the same Peter who writes in his letter that we are to submit, your, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution refused to submit when he was told to stop preaching the gospel. So those are two occasions when we are legitimately to disobey human government. This morning, I take up a third of six. A third occasion when we are to render God-honoring disobedience or insubordination, and it is this, disobeying when government oversteps its bounds. Now, the above cases are cases where we disobey where the government is clearly commanding sin or forbidding righteousness. Those are the easier occasions. This next category has to do not so much with the government commanding sin or forbidding the doing of right, but where the government oversteps its bounds. And we're going to see that there are two ways that the government may do this. First of all, when government transgresses into another sphere of authority, personal, family, or church, and when government calls evil good and good evil. So first, when government transgresses, crosses the line into another sphere of authority. We've talked about sphere sovereignty, right? What does that mean? It means that God has delegated to human authorities its own particular sphere or realm within which it may operate. The family has a jurisdiction, the church has a jurisdiction, and the state has a jurisdiction. We also might talk about um, the jurisdiction of the individual, um, self-government, that's also there. And these are not hierarchical. One is not subordinate to another. These are coordinate. They're side by side. Authority given to family, authority given to church, authority given to the state. That's clear from Jesus' words when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then Paul uses the same word in Romans 13 when he says, um, uses the word render, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In other words, give to Caesar what is his due. 
Caesar has his things that you give to Caesar. He has his sphere of authority assigned him by God. Give him his things. But here's the point. Each sphere of authority must, must stay in its lane. Now, there is going to be some overlap. So if you're a believing husband, you will be under the state and under the authority of the church. If you're a believing wife, you will be under your husband's authority, under the authority of church leaders, and under the authority of the state. If you're a child, you will be under the authority of your parents. If you're a believing child, you'll be under the authority of the church. If you're a citizen, you will be under the authority of the state. So there's some overlap. But here's the point. When any human authority oversteps its bounds and goes outside of its God-given jurisdiction and intrudes upon another sphere of human authority, it may be disobeyed. Notice I'm not saying must, but it may be disobeyed. Now let's take the realm of the family. Children, you are commanded in Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you. You are commanded to obey parental authority. Parents have legitimate authority over their children. What if a child disobeys? There's an ominous threat in Proverbs 30, verse 17, that says, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out. It's a dangerous thing to go against parental authority. Years ago, when I was pastoring in Downingtown, we had a carport there, and it has a, um, a piece of concrete there, and some kids came by, and they would wax that little piece of concrete for their skateboarding. It worked well for their skateboarding, but it was not so good for older people who could slip on that waxed concrete. I remember engaging these boys and trying to share the gospel with them, and one of them was an Asian boy, and oh, it came out that he had deep bitterness toward his parents. I lost track of them, but I later learned that that boy had robbed a local gas station and being pursued by the police, he crashed his car into a tree and was killed. And I think of this, the eye that mocks father and mother, the, the raven of the valley will pick it out. It will not go well with you. And you may die an early death because if you defy that loving authority, the other authorities in life are not going to treat you so well. And so it's not good to go against your parental authority. But parental authority is limited. If your father tells you to go down to the neighborhood store and gives you a gun and says, rob it, then you're not going to obey your father on that occasion. But also, if the father says, as a family, we're going to be the church. Now, it's not wrong to have a home church. It's very biblical. You can have a church in a home. There's nothing sacred about the brick and mortar of the, mortar of the building. For decades now, you notice I don't refer to this as the church. I refer to this as the church building. It's all it is, the building. It's okay to have a home church. But when the father says, we as a family are going to be the church, just we, well, he's transgressing upon another sphere of authority. You're a family, but you're not the church. That's not your domain to make your family the church. You should be part of a church, but you are not the church. Let's think about the realm of the church and pastors. God has given real authority to pastors. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with grief, because that would be unprofitable for you. What happens if a person defies legitimate, godly, spiritual authority? Now, if you oppose illegitimate or ungodly authority, you're doing a good thing. But if a person defies legitimate, good, godly spiritual authority, what happens? Well, Miriam and Aaron tried it in opposing Moses in Numbers chapter 12. God says of Moses, he is faithful in all my household. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? And then it says, as Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. You want to defy legitimate, God-given, godly authority? You're going to be leprous for a time. It was also tried by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in Numbers 16. They didn't like the authority of Moses over them, and they said, you've gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, egalitarianism, you see. Every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? But then we read, that God told Moses to tell the congregation to get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And then Moses says, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. And then it says, as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households. That's what happens when a person defies legitimate, godly spiritual authority. There's real authority given to pastors. But again, that authority is limited. What if I, as a pastor, come into your home and start rearranging the furniture in your home or tell you how you need to manage your budget? Or like I said last week, tell the young people where you need to go to college or, or who you need to marry. You would be very right to say, pastor, that's none of your business. That's not your place. I can't tell you whether or not you should get the vaccine. I can't tell you you need to get the vaccine. You need not to get the vaccine. I can't tell you you need to wear a mask in this setting. You, you should not wear a mask. That is simply not my domain. I would be out of my lane. That's not authority God has given to me because I don't have chapter and verse to support it. The only authority I have is to declare to you the word of God, not my own opinions, not my own preferences, right? I would be out of my lane. Now, let's look at some biblical examples where government authorities, secular and religious, overstep their bounds and get out of their lane. One is in 2 Chronicles 26. If you can find that in your Old Testament, you have Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. It's before Psalms. In 2 Chronicles 26, I'll read this narrative about King Uzziah. 26 and verse 16. Terrible warning against pride. It says, he was marvelously helped, in verse 15, until he was strong. Interesting. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, 
but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will not have honor or have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. Well, what happened? He was a king. He had authority as a king in kingly things, but he tried to play priest. That wasn't his calling to be a priest. And the priests stand up and challenge him and say, buddy, that's, that's not your role. You'd be a king, but, but it's our job to do the priestly things. You're overstepping your bounds. You're getting out of your sphere of authority. And God backed it up from heaven and struck him with leprosy till the day of his death. David overreached his authority when he committed adultery with a woman who was not his wife. David was given authority as a king. David was made a warrior. God blessed him in his warring against the nations. He gave him victory after victory against the nations. He gave him great success as a king and as a warrior, beginning with Goliath. But when David took Bathsheba to be his wife, not only did he violate the seventh commandment and then the commandment of not, thou shalt not commit murder when he plotted the murder of Uriah and thou shalt not lie when he practiced deception, but it was outside his realm. He violated the family realm of Uriah. He intruded upon a realm that was not his. And of course, he suffered for it. When Peter and John were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, the authorities were going beyond their delegated authority. King Jesus had said, you go and preach. It was not their realm to tell the apostles to stop preaching. Now let's bring it closer to home as to what's really impinging on us now. First of all, the government has no authority over our bodies. There is, in addition to family government, church government, and civil government, there is self-government. You have a right to your own body. The government has no right to insist that you inject anything into your body. We could say, my body, my choice. Now, that's misused. Uh, the other night, our daughter had come from California. We didn't, went into Westchester to get some gelato ice cream, and we're walking around and there were some women there, young women, probably college students, and they were protesting the decision about Roe versus Wade. And one of the women held a sign, pretty much typical of this, my body, my choice. Now, had I been alone, I would have engaged them in conversation, but I spared my wife and daughter. But what I would have said is, your body, your choice. You believe that with regard to the vaccine? I don't know what they would have said. But then I would have said as graciously as I could, Dear woman, your body, your choice, but what might be growing within you is not your body. It's another body. It's a life, and you dare not take it, or you're committing murder. So my body, my choice doesn't apply there, but when it comes to the vaccine or injecting something into our bodies, we can rightly say before God, my body, my choice. 
And the government has no right to dictate to you whether or not you get the jab. It is a matter of individual conscience. Neither the government nor your employer nor I as a pastor have a right to tell you to get the vaccine or not to get the vaccine. It's a matter of individual liberty. Some people will decide, you know what? They're saying I can't continue in my job if I don't get the vaccine. I've done studies and I realize the vaccine's not all that dangerous and I don't want to lose my job over it. And so in faith, I'm going to get the vaccine and keep my job. I'm going to choose the jab to keep my job. And they do it in faith. Is that pleasing to God? Yes, it is. Some other Christian says, I'm going to lose my job if I don't get the jab. And the study I've done indicates that, I don't know, there's a lot of bad effects from it, and and it could endanger my health, and I don't have the faith to get the jab, and so I'm going to risk losing my job by not getting the jab. Can they do that in faith and be pleasing to God? Yes. It's a matter of individual conscience, right? Neither a pastor nor employer nor the government has a right to insist that you inject something into your body. It's a matter of your liberty of conscience. And the government has no authority over the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He purchased her with his own blood, and he alone has the right to direct the life of the church. And in these areas, it's worship, it's doctrine, it's polity, and it's mission. The government has no right to tell the church who may be a member of it and who not. The church cannot dictate what we are to believe or not believe. The church, or the state rather, cannot dictate to the church its worship. It can't dictate whether or not we can sing or not. It can't dictate how many people can come to worship, how far we need to sit apart, whether we need to need have masks or not. That is not the state's job to dictate to the church. The church cannot determine who may be leaders in the church. King Jesus has given us the qualifications for that. And the state cannot dictate the mission of the church. And when Jesus says, go and preach, the church must obey Jesus, even if the government says, stop teaching in this name. Now, you see, some of these things are not sin. To meet virtually is not sin, although some would argue from the Greek word ekklesia, assembly means you need to assemble bodily. But we met virtually for a time. It is not sin to meet virtually. It is not sin to come to worship wearing a mask. It is not sin to come and choose to sit six feet apart from each other. These things are not sinful that the government may ask or require the church to do. It's not that they're sinful. The point is the government has no right to tell us. This is the sphere of King Jesus, and government must not intrude upon it. In those cases, we're not saying that you must disobey, but you may disobey according to individual or corporate conscience. And different churches have decided differently about those things, right? Some churches have chosen to open up sooner than others. Some churches have required or requested masks 
different churches, different Christians, different pastors have made different decisions. We say that's a matter of Christian liberty. What we should all be agreed about is that the state has no business intruding upon what is the sphere of King Jesus, and that is the church. Does that make sense? I personally am very thankful for uh, Pastor John MacArthur and the state of and the, the, the stand that Grace Community Church has taken. I think as a large church, they've been examples to many other churches, and, and God has vindicated them in that strong stance that they took. So there's a second way that government can overstep its bounds, not only when it transgresses into a, the sphere of another, either personal, family, or church, but when government calls evil good and good evil. We've learned clearly from Romans 13 and from 1 Peter 2 that the role of government is to punish the evil and to reward the good. Let me just reread Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the government, is a minister of God for your, to, to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Clearly, the government is to punish the evil and to reward the good. It becomes a problem. Well, let's ask the question, though. Who gets to define what is good and evil? God. Because in this very context, Paul cites the Ten Commandments. In verses 8 through following, he says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So who gets to define what is good and what is evil? God. He's the definer of good and evil. And so what happens is there's a problem when the state presumes to define or redefine good and evil. And what are we seeing in our day? We're seeing a fulfillment of Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. At times like that, the Christian may disobey. So what are we seeing this month? So-called Pride Month. Businesses are being required to put the rainbow symbol, which they've co-opted from Noah. It's our symbol, right? It's a symbol of God's kindness that he's not going to destroy the earth again by water, but that's been co-opted as a symbol of sexual perversion. And unless you put that symbol on your business, you are in serious danger of being shut down. Athletes are seriously in danger of losing their job if they don't wear the rainbow patch. Well, in such a case as that, Christians may disobey and say, no, I don't want to identify with that cause. I'll identify with the biblical rainbow, but I don't, don't want to identify with what the, the rainbow has come to symbolize, and I'm not going to do that. And we'll have to suffer the consequences for it because the government has come to redefine good and evil. It is good 
to be so tolerant of all these sexual alternatives. And God says, no, it is perversion. It is evil. It's an abomination. And so here are, here's another general area, not where Christians must disobey, but where they may disobey, where the government gets out of its lane, oversteps its bounds by either transgressing on the sphere of another's authority, your personal authority, your family authority, or the authority of the church, or where the government comes to redefine good and evil its own way, contrary to the law and will of God. So, as I close, I call us not to be naive or ignorant concerning our responsibility to government authorities. They are ordained of God, all of them. And our spiritual instinct, and I heard that in a podcast this week, and I thought, that's a good word. Our spiritual instinct should be to obey. As I said previously, Christians are not to be known as rabble-rousers, troublemakers, defiant, rebellious people in society. In fact, quite the opposite. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We don't go around looking for an opportunity. Where can I disobey? Where can I defy government? We don't. That's not our disposition. We are a hupotasso people. We are a submissive people, submissive ultimately to God and to every human authority under him, because in doing so, we're submissive to our God. That's our general disposition. That's our instinct. However, on the other hand, we must not be naive and ignorant as to the limitations of human government and the occasions when we either must or may disobey in the name of our Lord and King Jesus Christ for the promotion of his truth, his kingdom, and his glory, and for the protection of God-given liberties. And a lot of Christians are not recognizing those limitations. There are some who are overly defiant and just going around with their chin out looking for trouble. Let's not be like that. But let's not either be like those who are so naive and saying, oh, if the government commands it, I do it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You need to think a little more deeply. Is it a matter where you must obey or is it a matter where you must disobey or may disobey? We need to be critical in our thinking, and we need to navigate these waters very thoughtfully and carefully in light of what God says. But as I said last week, with human authorities, we need to navigate this terrain with carefulness and determine when we should obey and when not. But I close by saying, with God, you need no such deliberation. When it comes to the authority of God, he is to be obeyed without question, without hesitation, and without limitation. And if you're here and you have not submitted yourself to the salvation that is in Jesus and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, God is calling you, inviting you, but also commanding you to repent and believe the gospel. And he is to be obeyed without question. And it will be for the eternal good of your soul to do so. So if you're not a believer, I plead with you, 
Leave the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent of your sins, and you will be forgiven and destined for heaven. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing number 10 from the book and go to the Lord's Supper. Father, your word is sufficient for every good work. It tells us everything we need to know about how to relate rightly to government. We pray you would keep us from errors on the right and on the left. Help us not to fall into the ditch whereby we are looking for a fight, looking to rebel, looking to defy. You've not called us to be that. You've called us to be a peaceable people. On the other hand, Lord, help us not to be naive, not to just roll over and comply mindlessly to government when the upholding of your truth and your prerogatives or the prerogatives of other spheres of authority must be maintained and our liberties given by you must be upheld. We need wisdom and grace. Please give it to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.